Yeah, let me say a quick prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of Matthew and what an amazing gospel message it is. We thank you for the clarity that we find there about Jesus and who he is and what he did and uh, what it means for us uh, that he came. And so we pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith in the Bible and in him and that you would change our lives. Help us to live the way that uh, Jesus teaches us uh, that we should uh, teaches us that we should live. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start off with this quote here. This is Richard Hayes, who's a great, uh, great New Testament scholar. It's a first quote in your outline. <clears throat> Matthew leaves nothing to chance. He repeatedly erects highway signs in large letters to direct his readers, making it unmistakably explicit, which means very clear, right? Making it unmistakably explicit that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's scripture. Matthew has organized his material in a didactic, user-friendly fashion, a kind of training manual for prophets. It is therefore not without reason that when the fourfold gospel canon was later assembled, Matthew was placed first. Nor is it without reason that Matthew became the gospel most frequently cited by early Christian writers and that commentaries were written on it by Origen, Jerome, John Chrysostom, Theodore of Mopsuestia, and Cyril of Alexandria, to mention just some of the patristic authors who focused on this gospel. Matthew successfully organized the Jewish tradition, sorry, the Jesus tradition. Matthew successfully organized the Jesus tradition in a form that made it clear, harmonious, and accessible. But was he the first gospel writer? It's the first gospel in our New Testament. How could it not be the first gospel written? Yeah, you guys said no because why? Because Mark, yeah, Mark is in fact the first gospel. So, um, so when the New Testament was uh, first put together, there was some sense that Matthew was was first. But, um, but he was not. Uh, Mark is actually the first gospel. But there's a, there's a, there's a way that Matthew, um, more than Mark, kind of connects the Old Testament from the New Testament, uh, Old Testament to the New Testament. So if you turn to Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Everyone have a Bible? Joby, can you read Matthew 1 1? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Nice. Why is that a fitting first sentence for the New Testament? So remember, you have, you have uh, 39 Old Testament books, Genesis to Malachi. A lot happens in those 39 books. And then you turn the page, and suddenly you're in what's called the New Testament, and you get to this Gospel of Matthew, and then you read that sentence. Why would that be the a fitting first s- sentence for the New Testament to talk about Jesus? This is just one of those thinking questions, not like there's one single right answer, but just why do you think this would be a fitting first sentence for your New Testament? What do you think, Isaac? Jesus is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant? That's a great answer, yeah. 
So David and Abraham, sorry, go ahead, Ellie. That's a great answer too. Yes, very true. And when you when you read into that genealogy, it starts with Abraham, right? Yeah, yeah. That's one of those easy questions. Uh, yeah, it starts with Abraham, and then uh, works through forty-two generations, and then it gets to Jesus. Um, and so, if you're thinking, you know, if you. Uh, there's really no better way to tie the New Testament to the Old Testament, to tie Jesus to the Old Testament, than to put Jesus right in the genealogy of Abraham. Uh, he's in the family line of Abraham. Um, so, I mean, of course, all Jews are in the family line of Abraham, and so it's significant in that sense. Um, but not all Jews would be in the family line of David or in the family line of Judah. So what Matthew is doing, uh, doing for us there is, is showing us just how much, you know, these the New Testament, New Testament, Old Testament are meshed together, how, how they fit together. And that the central figure of the New Testament uh, is, is uh, fulfilling the central figures of the Old Testament. I mean, if you wanted to pick, uh, you know, the most important men in the Old Testament, well, David and Abraham would be, at the top of your list. Who, who might be another guy that you would pick? If you're going to pick the most important guy, Moses? Anyone, anyone want to add another person? Noah. Noah, a significant figure. He's not mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, but he's a, he's a significant figure. Of course, we're here because of Noah, right? If there was no uh, Noah who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, then uh, there is no humanity. Uh, he found favor, and so humanity was saved. Um, so yeah, important in that sense, isn't he? Um, but yeah, uh, Moses, Moses is an interesting, um, third guy to add because what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is going to basically be presented as the new Moses. Um, so what was it about Moses that was distinct in the old, old Testament? There's, there's several things that are distinct about Moses, but, um, for a couple of those. Hey, girls. They need some outlines. Do you mind passing those to them? Yeah, so what was distinct about Moses in the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, that was that's where Jesus fulfills Moses in a unique way. Um, so Moses is the central teacher uh, of God's word in the Old Testament. And so uh, all of the Old Testament te- revelation is built on top of the law of Moses. And so Jesus is presented as a new Moses, a new lawgiver, a new, a new teacher of the revelation of God. All right. Um, yeah, and the reason, the reason I went through all that is that uh, the beginning of Mark uh, is is very interesting, but it doesn't quite tie to the Old Testament in such a complete way as the, as the beginning of Matthew. There's nothing Obviously, there's nothing wrong with Mark. It's just a different approach. Beginning of John also doesn't tie to the Old Testament in such a 
dramatic way. Beginning of Luke is wonderful, but doesn't quite tie to the Old Testament in such a complete way. So there's really, it's, Matthew is really a perfect first book for our New Testament. All right, so how do we know that Matthew wrote Matthew? Uh, well, duh, we just look at our ESV and it says right there. Um, actually, there hasn't been uh, a, a New Testament manuscript that didn't say some version of the gospel according to Matthew. They've always had that. Uh, so you never had uh, an anonymous gospel of Matthew where they were, they were trying to figure out who wrote it. So that's, that's helpful. And then uh, throughout in early church history, whenever someone was talking about Matthew's gospel, they would refer to it as Matthew's gospel or something like that. So here's a guy from the second century. This is Irenaeus. So his years are 130 to 202. So, you know, about 100 years after Jesus' life. Um, but it's still early. I mean, that's, that's a long time ago, right? And so he, th- he said this, which is interesting. So this is on page, uh, what, 32 of your outline, the middle. For after our Lord rose from the dead, the apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, were filled uh, from all his gifts and had perfect knowledge. They departed to the ends of the earth, preaching the glad tidings of the good things sent from God to us and proclaiming the peace of God to men who indeed do all equally and individually possess the gospel of God. So these, uh, these apostles chosen by God, filled with, filled with the Holy Spirit, they went preaching. And so then he, then he explains uh, the, the, gospels, the gospel writings themselves. He says, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also uh, leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So that, that part that's underlined in bold, uh, What's, what, uh, what are a couple facts we learned there that are really helpful for trying to figure out the when and where of Matthew? Um, well, it was, it was a gospel among the Hebrews. So not in Hebrew, but it would be among the Hebrews, which is the Jews. So, so Matthew is often talked about as the gospel that's maybe more written uh, with a Jewish audience in mind than the others. That's a little bit um, debatable, but there's some there's some truth to that. Yeah, good point. Um, have to do some research on that. What what was intended there by in their own dialect? It probably it probably still does actually get at. Um, uh, Jewish phrases uh, or Hebrew phrases and uh, ideas that would have found their way into Matthew's Greek gospel. Uh, still kind of getting that, that idea written for a Jewish audience. What else? Kind of a significant fact in that underlined bold sentence. Yeah, that's really significant because uh, we, we know basically when they died. They died in the mid-60s A.D. Uh, by the persecution of Nero. 
So that tells us uh, that Matthew's gospel is early. It's um, So the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, and so this is before that. And um, he laid the foundations of the church, as it says. So that's, that's helpful. That, that gives us some context for um, with the when and where of Matthew. Interesting little fact. Elias. Interesting little fact, uh, number three there, that, that only Matthew calls himself Matthew the tax collector. Uh, when you have the, the list of the 12 apostles, uh, only, only Matthew calls himself Matthew the tax collector. So when Mark lists the 12 and when Luke lists the 12, they list Matthew, but they don't list him as Matthew the tax collector. And the assumption is that that was kind of a, a sign of respect by, by Mark and Luke. You know, this is, a, this is an apostle. This is a good friend of ours. We don't want to lower his esteem in the eyes of others, and so we're not going to call him a tax collector. But Matthew knew who he was. He wasn't ashamed of it, at least in the sense that he was... Um, he knew his testimony. He knew his conversion testimony. He knew what he was. He knew what he, uh, and he knew what he was in Christ, and so he was comfortable actually referring to himself as Matthew, the tax collector. That's one of those little uh, clues that probably Matthew wrote this gospel. Um, no one else would do that if Matthew himself didn't do that. So he's converted in chapter nine. He's a tax collector. So Jesus is walking along, and then sees Matthew at. Um, uh, the tax booth, and so Jesus looks at him and says, "Come, follow me." And why Matthew chose to follow Christ uh, in the, given the details of the story, it's hard to tell. It's possible Matthew actually knew Jesus. I mean, this was this is in both of their hometowns. They could have grown up together. Uh, so this maybe wasn't the first time they they would have talked or had some kind of interaction, um, but. Whatever the, whatever the case, uh, God worked on the heart of Matthew, and Jesus said, follow me. And so then you get this great scene in, in chapter 9 where Matthew invites all of his friends to a party because he wants his friends to meet Jesus. And, of course, his friends are tax collectors and sinners. They're, they're unbelievers like he was. They're unsaved like he was. But, they, but he, wants, he wants his friends, his unsaved friends, to discover Jesus like he did, be saved. And then he's, he, he's an apostle, of course. He's listed among the 12. In Acts chapter 1, he's, he's listed as one of the apostles that's you know, gathered there with the church, waiting on the Holy Spirit to fall. And then, then he just disappears. His name just disappears from the record. It doesn't mean he disappeared. It just means that there was no event, no, uh, no speech he gave that uh, was ever recorded after that. Um, So that's, uh, that's our man, Matthew. Um, a lot of times these guys are called evangelists. So one, the four evangelists who shared the Gospels. Um, so he's one of the four evangelists. Um, all right, we've talked about this before with our Gospel of Luke. I know that feels like 100 years ago, but we actually did. So we talked about a synoptic gospel, and we said that that meant what, basically what? You don't have to know the exact translation. Same? Yeah. 
All right, synoptic. It's some. It's some kind of like C width or something like that. So you get these these uh, these three guys, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they see the same thing in a slightly different way. They're witnesses to the same thing, or at least re- recording witness testimony to the same thing. But when they record it uh, in writing, they rec- they record it in a slightly different way, but also very similar. The th- those three are synoptics, and then you have the Gospel of John, who's kind of his own deal, as we'll see. Um, all right, so Matthew, Mark. Luke. All right, for a long time in church history, they felt like uh, Matthew was first and that Mark saw Matthew's gospel and said, it's entirely too long. We need to shorten this thing. And so he took Matthew's gospel and he just cut out parts and he just left what he thought was the good stuff. Uh, That's what Augustine thought in the 300s. But over time, scholars said, no, that's not what happened. Uh, What happened was that Mark was first. And he gave us the basic, uh, the, the basic flow of ideas and the basic plot. And then Matthew came along slightly later and said, this is great. I'm going to start here. I'm going to start with Matthew, or Mark's stuff, but I'm going to add my own eyewitness testimony to it. So he adds a lot of the teaching of Jesus and uh, some other miracles and things. But Mark becomes sort of the main, uh, the main skeleton, what you start with. And so what's distinct about Mark is it's, He uses this uh, geographic flow. Um, so some of you guys have maps in the back of your Bible. Let's turn there very quickly. Hopefully you're close enough to someone else if you don't have a map in the back of your Bible that you can see a Bible. Um, usually the last, well, the last map is usually Paul's preaching, Paul's ministry. We don't want that. Do you have some some map that has uh, the ministry of Jesus? I know it would have been better to have a PowerPoint for this. Look at that. I did not see one for me. All right, this is our very low-tech version of a map. The map itself, of course, is very high-tech, but me showing you this is very low-tech. All right. So, um, yeah, where are we here? Yeah, so the, the key distinctives, you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, and then you have the Dead Sea in the south. And then between those two, you have the, the Jordan River. And then usually over here, not usually, <laughs> it hasn't changed. Um, so off to the west here of uh, just, just uh, northwest of the Dead Sea, that's where you have Jerusalem. So Jesus is, does almost all of his ministry in, in Matthew's gospel up here in Galilee. Um, so this is, um, so Nazareth is up here, Capernaum, um, Caesarea, all those cities. So those are all up here. The Decapolis, uh, there's a, the Gerasene demoniac that takes place in the, the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And then at some point uh, in the gospel, he's going he's gonna to turn toward Jerusalem. So the crucifixion is coming. So he's going to turn toward Jerusalem and walk along uh, the Jordan River. 
and then the triumphal entry when he goes into Jerusalem and then, then the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. So that, that kind of starting in the north and working his way south, that's, we get that from the Gospel of Mark. And so then when, then when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, they started with that same idea and then added their own material as uh, they had, they had uh, eyewitness testimony to add. That's really different than John. So John, uh, John's distinct because he doesn't record the birth of Christ. Mark doesn't either, but uh, it's distinct in John that he doesn't. Uh, it, his baptism is where it starts. Uh, he's baptized by John. And he travels to Jerusalem and back and Jerusalem and back and Jerusalem and back a lot of times. Which is probably, uh, if you're, if you're going to think in terms of uh, chronology, the, the, the historical order of things, that's what Jesus would have done because he was a Jew, right? And a Jew would have gone to Jerusalem often uh, for feasts. And uh, so the, the, the cycle of feasts, um, and you see that throughout the Gospel of John. But, as we said, uh, Mark has a different approach. So he starts in Galilee. Works his way to Jerusalem in the crucifixion. And that's what Matthew does. Um, Also, in terms of markers, Matthew, kind of like uh, what we saw in the, the book of Acts, where you had these this sentence or this phrase that popped up and that told you, oh, hey, the section's over. We're moving to a new section now. Matthew does the same thing. So if you turn to 729, Matthew 729, you know, in the early chapters, you've got the birth, which has some great material, and the baptism. He begins his ministry in chapter 4. Sorry, at 728. So chapters 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount, most famous teaching of Jesus uh, probably uh, in the New Testament. I mean, maybe John 3 is more famous, but it's, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really famous. Uh, and then after that, t- that big block of teaching, you get, that, you get this, uh, these two sentences or this, uh, these ideas in 728 and 729. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, and he, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus finished these sayings. So then we fast forward to 11.1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. So you get a block of teaching, and then you get... This, this sentence. And the block of teaching this time has to do with Jesus equipping his disciples for the ministry that they're going to have. And then we fast forward again to So we go to 1353, when Jesus had finished these parables, slightly different, but same idea, had finished these parables. Because what you have in chapter 13 is the, is the famous kingdom parables. Uh, 
six or eight parables where, where they all start off with the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like this or that. Uh, very famous parables. And then you get to chapter 19, verse 2. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Um, so he's moving toward Jerusalem at that point. Um, so that's so it's uh, the, the sentence after a big block of teaching, and this time the big block of teaching has to do with our sins. Uh, so um, if you cause a child to sin, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Um, if, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You, you go to him, tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, great. If you don't, bring another. Uh, if he doesn't listen to the two of you, tell the church. If, if he doesn't listen to the church, then let him be to you as a tax collector. So remove him from the church. And then the great uh, parable about unforgiveness. So the, the servant who is forgiven a trillion dollars, basically, and then his friend comes up to him and says, I owe you $100, will you please forgive me? And the guy says, no way. And so then the king who heard about that got furious and threw the guy in prison, rightfully so. All right, so that's the next block. And then you get to 26.2. A lot happens in, in these chapters, but you get to 26.2, 26.1 actually, sorry. And when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So we're in the last week of Jesus' life at this point. And the big block of teaching before this has to do with the return of Christ and, and the crucifixion, actually. Um, so 24, chapters 24 and 5 are, are hugely important. And then there isn't a, a final one uh, at the end of the whole book, but you have the Great Commission at the end of the whole book. And so that's, that's sort of a similar kind of thing. When Jesus had finished all these things, basically, he told his disciples, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's how, that's how Matthew is organized. So you've got this prologue where Jesus is born and baptized, and then you have these blocks of, of teaching that are all broken by these... Uh, by these phrases, and when Jesus had finished these teachings, so then you're transitioning. So that would be like his Matthew's chapter break, right? So they didn't have chapters and verses and when it was originally written. So we've added those, sometimes in good places, sometimes in not so good. Um, but we know we know from what Matthew says in his in his word how to break up how to break up this this uh, this gospel. All right, so that's the outline. And now let's think about why we need and love Matthew. So what did you guys, as you were reading Matthew, what did you appreciate? What stood out to you? I doubt it was your first time reading Matthew. Um, but maybe, maybe you read it slightly faster than you have in the past. I don't know. But what stood out to you this time as you were reading Matthew? It's so long. Maybe that's what stood out. Why is it so long? 
At least it's not as long as Luke. But what else stood out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have a, uh, words in red, uh, there are a lot of red, a lot of red words in this in this gospel. Yeah, that is true. There was also a lot of Old Testament like prophecies being fulfilled. Yes. Like Jesus quoting Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's very distinct in Matthew. The other gospels have that for sure, but it's uh, it's definitely a a key a key re- uh, reason that Matthew wrote his gospel. Yeah is to make all those connections. I'm struck by the wisdom of Jesus, how he was able to handle so many different problems that came one at a time. And there's a whole chapter about Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him and trying to test him and trip him up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's like a big boxing match, except he wins every single round. Yeah, they keep coming back, and he keeps just knocking them down like it's like it's easy. Yeah, yeah, those are good things, um, and those are all true things, true aspects of Matthew. So I'm going to give you a few a uh, few things to add to your list. The kingdom of God is a big deal in, well, it's just a big deal, but it's also a big deal in Matthew's gospel. Um, um, so the key with the kingdom so some, sometimes when you think about a kingdom you think about the land and the land is a big part of the kingdom you know if it's a beautiful land then it's a wonderful kingdom or whatever but when it comes to the kingdom of God the big deal is the king. Wherever the king is, that's where the kingdom is. Uh, and, where, and where the king is not, the kingdom is not. Uh, but Jesus is presented as, as the king of this kingdom. And so faith in him is how you enter the kingdom. Um, and so I mean, in some ways, the definition of the kingdom of God is, is God's rule. What is God's kingdom? It's God's rule. Um, and we are... We are under him as our king, and so we are part of God's rule. Um, some people have said it's God's, uh, God's um, uh, people in God's place under God's rule. That's another way to get at the same thing. Um, but, but it all starts with the king. So, so Jesus is presented as a king, and so you get this phrase, the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Uh, kingdom of God is used five times. Kingdom of heaven is used 32 times. And that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is only found in Matthew's gospel. So if you think about Matthew writing to Jews, they had, they had a real nervousness about using the name of God. And so there's, a, there's an assumption that, that uh, Matthew used that changed out God for heaven so that his Jewish readers would be more comfortable reading his gospel message. Um, but it gets at the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is... It's, it's just another way of saying kingdom of God. Um, 
Yeah, so some of the, some of the verses, so you, anytime David is mentioned, um, well, anytime Jesus is mentioned as the son of David, uh, is what I'm trying to say, then that's, that's basically a pointer back to the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the significance with, um, I guess Isaac referred to this, but the Davidic covenants, the promise that God made to David, is that you will have a son who will reign forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so there's some, there's some king coming uh, that's, that's going to come in the line of David, and he's going to be unlike any other king that, that ever was. He's not just going to reign for a long time. You know, Solomon reigned a long time, 40 years. Uh, reigned a long time. A lot of, a lot of the, uh, I think Manasseh reigned 52 years. There were, there were Old Testament kings that reigned a long time, but none of them reigned... None of them reigned 100 years. Uh, and the Davidic dynasty, you know, the son of David who, who had a son of David, who had a son of David, who had a son of David, the Davidic dynasty lasted a long time, hundreds, hundreds of years, which is really unusual. Uh, it's, it's, it's not common for uh, a single uh, man to have a lineage like that, who all are kings. But eventually it stopped and, until you got to Christ. And so he came on as the son of David uh, and the great king, the great king promised. And so um, that's all part of that kingdom of God message. You know, Jesus, when he begins his ministry in 417, what he says is, repent for the kingdom of God, sorry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he could have said is, and really what he meant was, repent for the king is here. The king has now come. The king that you've been waiting for has now come. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to enter this, this kingdom, if you want to follow this king, well, then be poor in spirit. You know, it's not a, it's not a kingdom of the wealthy and powerful who boast in themselves and don't, and don't fall, in, uh, fall before Christ. No, this is, a, this is a kingdom of the poor in spirit. And then uh, 720, and then I'm on page 35, my outline. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sobering passage. So entering the kingdom is a big deal. If, if those outside the kingdom are punished forever, well, then I want to be in the kingdom. How do, how do I get in the kingdom? Well, I need to be poor in spirit. I need to do the will of the Father. Uh, and that I only do the will of the Father by starting with faith. I can't, I can't do the will of the Father apart from faith. And then um, also in Matthew and also Mark and Luke, a, a, a big part of the kingdom is crushing the, uh, if you remember the, 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 in the Garden of Eden, there's that promise where uh, God curses the serpent. He says, uh, um, the, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, uh, crush the head of the offspring of the, of the serpent. And so this battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent is in some ways, that's the great battle of history, right? And so Jesus is the offspring of the woman, offspring of Mary. Um, and he's the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so this Jesus versus Satan is a big part of, of what's going on in the Gospels. And wherever you see Jesus, he's crushing the head of the serpent. He's crushing Satan. Um, and so he says this in, in chapter 12, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. 
how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So whenever you see demons being cast out, people being healed, well, that's the kingdom of God coming into this realm. And then uh, one of the kingdom parables, there's a bunch of them, but uh, so the kingdom of heaven, you know, what is it like to be in this kingdom? Well, it's, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in a search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there's... You know, Jesus, Jesus knows how we think and how we live and how, uh, how we need to learn things. And so he uses illustrations. And so he's telling us that in, in ways that we can still understand, you know, these parables are very powerful because they still make sense to us, don't they? You know, they're 2,000 years ago, and yet they make, they make very clear sense to us. And what, it, what they're telling us is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the most powerful, sorry, the most valuable thing that there is, the most precious and desirable thing that there is. Um, yeah, yeah, and then in terms of, of Jesus as king, the fact that he's, he's the Messiah, the promised king, the anointed one, the Christ, that's why his crucifixion was such a shock to his followers. So the assumption was, if you, know, if you, if you look at the Old Testament promises about David, the coming son of David who's going to reign forever, it's clear that this son is going to conquer all nations and that all nations will come to him and bow before him in obedience. And, he's, and then that king is going to bless his people. So they knew that, that that triumphant king was coming. But then Jesus was killed. He was crucified. And almost in kind of a, a, a mocking type way, as he's on the cross, they put over his head, this is, the, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So this is the king. And so the fact the king was being crucified, they, they did not comprehend that. That was a, that was a shocker to them. Um, the fact that he would be raised from the dead, ascend to heaven, and then one day you know, return in triumph you know, with his legion of angels, that they just didn't, they didn't get all that. Um, all they saw was that their king, their supposed king, was dying on a cross, and they didn't, they didn't understand what was going on there. Um, they didn't get that the king actually had to die for the people for the people to be redeemed. That's why the king had to die. So the king did die, but then the king was raised. And that's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I am the king above all kings. Uh, Satan is no longer the king of this world uh, in this um, unqualified way. Uh, He's still is the prince of this world, uh, but I'm the king over it, and his days are numbered. That's really what Jesus is saying by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just as you read, as you read Matthew in the future, just take note where, where the kingdom pops up, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, uh, king language. It pops up in all the Gospels, but, um, but, but take particular note of Matthew. So that's one thing we love about Matthew. A second thing, uh, we've alluded to this already, but the prophecies. 
that we find in Matthew fulfilled are wonderful. So turn to Matthew 1. All right, so in groups of three, in groups of three, find all the prophecies in chapters one and two. Groups of three or four. Ready, go. Three or four is fine. Yeah, yeah. So tell me the verse in Matthew, and then tell me the Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled. Chapters 1 through 3. Oh, I'm sorry. No, just in your groups. Work it out, and then when in a minute, I will ask your groups. Yeah, feel free to ask me clarifying questions if something is not clear. You guys getting close? Okay, I think we might need to get going. Let's see how we did. Where's um? So you guys, give me your first, your first prophecy. They said Matthew one twenty three. And what did it fulfill? What verse? What Old Testament prophecy? Isaiah 7.14. Is that the first one? Anyone have one before 123? Yeah, so the, uh, the virgin shall have a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah, one of the great, one of the great descriptions of Christ that there is, God with us. So he's not with us to punish us and send us to hell. He's with us to bless us and save us. Um, If we're not his people, well, then he's with us to judge us. But we are his people, so he's with us to bless. Yeah, so 123. um, Next one. So your group, next one is 2, 5 through 6. And what is it? Fulfill? Micah 5, 2, which says what? Well, just you can just read the Matthews quote, yeah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Big deal. Uh, the city of David. He's born in Bethlehem. So that's you guys. Ellie, what about your group? What's your next prophecy? 2.15. And then it's from, um, it's probably from Jeremiah 31.15. 31.15? Two fifteen is. 
which is, what does that say? Kind of crazy, right? He's born in Bethlehem, but he's out of Egypt. That's a complicated combination of things to come together, and yet they're both fulfilled in Christ. Uh, that's you guys. Logan, what about your group? What's your next prophecy? We're, we're up to 215. 218, which says... Yeah, really tragic scene. So Jeremiah 31, 15, is that what we said? All right, four prophecies, and we're only, I mean, if you started it at 123, this is only like 25 verses, right? We've already got four major Old Testament prophecies. Um, And do we have another one? Did you guys get another one? What would you get? Three three, which says. Forty verse three, so that's the voice, not to be confused, you know, with the TV show. All right, so the voice crying in the wilderness is. John the Baptist, yes. You all wanted to say it, I know. All right, there's actually a prophecy before this, although it's kind of a funny one. It's complicated. Um, I see some heads, so you guys have that one. So what did you? Uh, 2.23? Yeah, we'll call that, we'll just call it 6. All right, yeah, and it doesn't have a verse attached to it, right? So he will be called the Nazarene. What does it say? That's the assumption. Uh, Nazarene was not a high-profile city. It's, uh, it's like be, being from a really small country town. Um, you know, and someone from New York City is looking at that really small country town and making fun of you because you're from such a random, uh, know-nothing town. Um, and so it kind of fulfills in a general, all of these prophecies that have to do with Christ being, um, like in Isaiah 53, um, he's, he's, he's one that we despised. We despised him, and yet he became the one exalted. And so it fulfills uh, a, a theme, a prophetic theme in the Old Testament. So not a single prophecy like we get these other ones, but a theme. Any other prophecies in chapter 3? I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. Any that you got, that is? All right, so for these, for these prophecies, we'll say 2.23 is a unique one. It's real, but it's a different kind of prophecy. But with these five prophecies, what are the clues that, that Matthew gives you that this is Jesus fulfilling a prophecy? You guys all had this, a similar list of prophecies, right? Why did you have such a, why was it so clear uh, what was happening there? 
words of prophets. So it's an actual quotation. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a quote. It's not just a general idea. It's a, an actual Old Testament quotation. What are the other clues we get? Yeah. Yeah, actually that word fulfill is that's it's often the tip off uh in Matthew's gospel. This fulfilled what was spoken by so and so. And and I think in all these it says the name of the prophet, right? Not not Hosea. Or maybe it just says prophet. It just says prophet, yeah. And that's actually pretty common. Um so Isaiah gets mentioned clearly, explicitly sometimes, Jeremiah sometimes, um, but most other prophets don't. They're just called the prophet or a prophet. So in other words, these are really clear, right? Matthew gives you, this is, uh, I read that quote at the beginning uh, from Richard Hayes, and he said, um, Matthew leaves nothing to chance. He repeatedly erects highway signs in large letters to direct his readers, making it unmistakably explicit that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's scripture. And so what you guys are, uh, what you guys noticed, those are the, those big highway signs. This is God telling us Jesus fulfilling scripture. Um, yeah, and just because, you know, when you get to the end of the gospel, these themes pop up a lot. Turn to... 26, Matthew 26, verse 31. So this is the Thursday night going into early Friday morning uh, before Jesus is crucified. Uh, I don't know exactly what time the Lord's Supper would have been. it would have started after sundown and then gone way after midnight. Uh, so I'm not sure where we are at this exact hour. Um, but, it's, but the cross is getting closer and closer and closer. And so Jesus is getting uh, clearer and clearer about what's, what's about to happen. So if you pick it up at, actually I'll pick up at verse 26. Now as they were eating, so this is 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And it's, you know, when you read things like that, you always have to try to go back to that moment when it was happening. We, we race over this because we know exactly what's going to happen. We know what Jesus is talking about. Of course, the... You know, the, the cup is the blood and the bread is his body. We know that. We know that, we know that. But you have to think what it would have been like if you were an apostle sitting around the table and Jesus is saying this. What in the world would you have been thinking? There's no way you could have predicted what was about to happen. You had no idea that Jesus would be crucified within 12 hours. And yet here he is telling you that this is my blood of the covenant, my blood of the new covenant. No idea what, what he's talking about. But then he continues, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which, is, which would not have been a very far walk, uh, a couple miles. Uh, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that's Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah is one of those Old Testament books that has a lot of uh, specific prophecies about Jesus. So this one is a crucifixion prophecy. So I will strike the shepherd, and when that happens, his followers, the sheep, will be scattered. And so Jesus is crucified, and then his followers, the disciples, are scattered. That's exactly what happens. And so you get uh, throughout the the gospel, or the, sorry, throughout the, the the crucifixion narrative, all of these references to scriptures being fulfilled. He had to die so that scripture would be fulfilled. He doesn't always say what the scripture is, like in twenty six fifty four. So um, Jesus is betrayed. His disciples are trying to ward off the uh, the Roman soldiers. And then he says, stop, how, uh, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And then, it, then just a couple lines later, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the crucifixion is, a, is another place where you get this concentration of, of prophecies and, the, and then those prophecies fulfilled. All right, another big idea in Matthew is that this is letter C on my page 35. Matthew teaches us how to interpret the Old Testament law, or Old Testament laws, plural. So when you're, you're reading your Old Testament, you get to commandments. Uh, some of the books are filled with commandments. Not many, but a couple are really filled with commandments. Uh, Leviticus, filled with commandments. Exodus has a number. Um, uh, numbers has a number of commandments as well. Deuteronomy has a lot of commandments. And sometimes as a Christian, it's complicated to know which commands apply to us today and which ones don't. Which ones uh, am I bound to? Which ones am I not? And that's a complicated question, but Matthew is one of the ways um, that we figure out, figure out how to do that. Um, and we won't hit a lot here, but, uh, but this is a place where we should go back to the Sermon on the Mount. I told you it was just a very famous body of teaching. So go back to chapter 5. And we'll go to 5.17, chapter 5, verse 17. So Jesus gives the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those are the Beatitudes. And then he, then he gives this uh, profound set of ideas about the Old Testament, and then he teaches a, about how we should live. So in 5.17 he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is uh, in Greek, um, uh, all right, so this is, this is sun in Greek, huios, and this here is an iota, um, I think, right? Yes. So it's a small letter um, in Greek, or a dot. Um, so the smallest mark in Hebrew. So not an iota, not a dot. 
will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot here. We won't, we won't, we won't go into a ton of detail, but um, as a, at a basic idea, that word abolish... is important. Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament law. So he's, he's, and by this point in his ministry, and certainly as his ministry proceeds, you get the feeling that he's overturning all of these Old Testament things and all these traditions and ceremonies and things we've been used to as Jews for 1,500 years, or at least for uh, as long as we can remember. Um, and so you, someone might have the idea that, oh, Jesus is just... the going to abolish. He's going to overturn the whole thing. And what he's saying there is that's, that's not at all what he came to do. He's not going to abolish the law. He's going to fulfill the law. Um, so that word fulfill, another, another use of it. Ton of, ton of discussion on what Jesus means by fulfill. But I, I think the best way to understand fulfill is that he's using it like it's been used to that point in the gospel which is like we saw with the prophecies. There are, um, there are prophecies in the law, the books of Moses, that refer to Jesus. And so Jesus is, fu- is fulfilling those prophecies that refer to himself. And so that's why he says he's not going ab- to abolish the law, he's going to fulfill the law. But then he goes on and he says, you need to do the commandments. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, But whoever does them, whoever does the commandments, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, Now, if if that's all you had of the teaching of Jesus, that might make us really nervous because that might make you think, oh my goodness, that means all of those ceremonies in Leviticus I am bound to keep, right? And we'll see that that's 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 actually not the case. But um, we'll stay in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in a second. But the Sermon on the Mount. So you get to verse 21. These are called the antitheses, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, things that are kind of opposed to each other. Um, And so there's this series of, of teachings by Jesus where he starts off and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said this. But I say to you this. And so this is where you get Jesus as a new Moses, as a new lawgiver. So you have heard it said in the law of Moses, basically, but I say to you such and such. Uh, So you have heard it said, sorry, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Have you guys heard that before? You shouldn't murder people. Yeah. All right. Good basic commandment, right? Where do we find that commandment? It is Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, yeah. Yeah, that is the, that is the Sixth Commandment. So you get the, the four commandments that have to do with how we treat God, and then the honor your parents, and then murder. So it's, it's the, the key thing not to do to people 
is to murder them. So that's the big sin. Um, So you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the Jewish council. And whoever says, you fool, or words to that effect, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, so what is Jesus doing with the the law about murder at that point? Well, or, or something as bad as murder, yeah. Yeah, so he's definitely, you know, if you, if you think, well, I'm doing pretty well. I, I've never killed anybody. <laughs> I, have, I have fulfilled this commandment. And, and obviously Jesus isn't saying, no, you haven't. You have killed people. Um, what he's doing is, is getting you to look deeper. So what's the connection between murder and anger? Why would he say, you have heard it said, but I say? What is the connection there between murder and anger? I mean, generally, in most situations. Yeah, you're not going to murder someone without first being angry at them. And so there is, there is kind of a direct a cause and effect there. Uh, murder doesn't start with murder. Murder starts with anger. And Jesus is telling us that, that the anger that's in your heart, that's... It's just murder waiting to happen. That's really what Jesus is saying. So you have heard it said, don't murder. And that's true, good, yes. But I say to you, there's also, it's kind of like what he's saying is there's murder in the heart. Don't commit murder in the heart. So Jesus is, he's taking the commands of Moses and he's kind of pressing them down further. Now the truth is the commands, the, the Old Testament law actually does talk about sinful anger. You know, uh, unrighteous anger in the in the book of Proverbs is is a theme. So the the guy whose anger is out of control is like a city without walls. It's a it's a proverb. So it's not like anger is okay in the Old Testament and murder is not okay. Um, Jesus is is connecting them. So don't boast about the fact you've you fulfilled the Ten Commandments, and yet you give you give yourself over to anger all the time. So Jesus is um, here. He's not. He's not contradicting, not contradicting the law. He's completing, you know, he's, he's filling out how to understand the law. So connect murder and anger. Um, and, and he actually goes on and says several things. But now we're going to skip uh, to where so many places we could skip to. Yeah, go to 913. Um, this, this verse is actually quoted twice, so 9.13. So go and learn. So, so at this point, uh, Jesus has called Matthew. There's the, there's the gathering of Matthew's friends who are tax collectors and sinners. And then the Pharisees hear about this, and they're offended. How can, how can Jesus say he's a righteous man if he's eating with these people? And so Jesus is, is, is speaking to them. And he tells them, go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6.6. So it's a minor prophet, Hosea, 
6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus is quoting, in some ways he's quoting himself, right? The author of scripture. But he's quoting Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So that's God God speaking to the Jews in the Old Testament. God speaking to the uh, to the Jews in the prophets. And he's making a distinction between sacrifice and mercy. And really what, what God is telling Israel and what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is that if you're going to choose between giving sacrifices and offering mercy to people, which, which just means treating them well. You know, it means, it means a lot of things, but uh, treating them mercifully. If, 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 uh, if you're, well, let's say it this way. If you ever divide those two things, you know, you're, gonna, you're someone who's perfect with sacrifices and doesn't give mercy. And what, what Jesus is telling us here is that you're a lawbreaker. You're breaking the law. You're actually boasting of the fact that you keep the law because of your perfect sacrifices and ceremonies. But the truth is you're a lawbreaker because you don't offer mercy to people. And God would say to someone like that, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So stop being so uh, careful about sacrifices and start being merciful to people, extending true mercy. And Jesus is going to quote that again just a few chapters later. And that, that's important because... What Jesus is doing there is telling us that there are categories of Old Testament laws. There are laws that have to do with the ceremonies and sacrifices, and then there are laws that have to do with how we treat people. And the, the laws about how we treat people don't change. They don't go away. The laws about the ceremonies and sacrifices actually do. Um, so if we fast forward, kind of keeping that in mind, fast forward to Matthew 22. So um, test your knowledge of the Gospels. What are the two great commandments? All right, Judah thinks one of them at least is to love God. Do we agree with him? Yes, we should agree with him because that is correct. But there's a second commandment, which is yeah, to love your neighbor. So loving God and loving your neighbor, those are the two great commandments. All right, so uh, chapter 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. So a specialist in the law of Moses. Of a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You know, there's over 600 commands in the Old Testament. Which is the great commandment? Which is the most important commandment? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And it's important to see that that, that, was, a, uh, that was a radical way to answer that question. It wasn't like the, um, there was a long tradition of, of, of thinking in terms of two great commandments. Um, and so Jesus is, is giving us new, a new way to think of our Old Testament that there is such a thing as the great commandment in the Old Testament. There are commandments that are more important than other commands. And in fact, the greatest commandment in all the Old Testament is that one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So he quotes Deuteronomy there. This is the great and first commandment, but then he says a second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you want to understand how to live rightly, how to understand your Old Testament rightly with the laws, you need to see those two commands as the, mo- the, the two most important commands. And all, on these two commandments depend or hangs all the law and the prophets. And so a way you can think of that So we've got those two uber commands. All of the other commands in the Old Testament, one way or another, hang on either that commandment or that commandment. So you go to, you shall not murder. Which does that hang on? Yeah, love your neighbor. You shall have no other gods before me. Which does that hang on? Love God. Um, you know, honor your father and your mother. Yeah, to love your neighbor. So all the commands in the Old Testament hang on or depend on one of those two commands. Um, so it's a, it's a really helpful way to, um, to tell about whether we should keep the commandment or not. Um, you get into commands about the ceremonies. You know, is this a two-pigeon sacrifice or is this a one-pigeon sacrifice? I always forget. Um, and we'll see in, as we work through our New Testament uh, what happens to those laws. But for now, just, just keep that love God and love neighbor. And the, the commands that we're, uh, we're called to keep now are going to refer to one of, the, one of those two, loving God or loving neighbor. But we need to stop. Uh, let me just read the last two verses of Matthew and then... We'll end Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Last three verses, sorry. And Jesus came and said to his disciples, and to you and to me, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So go and do it. Thanks, guys.